Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, anxious to discuss arguably the biggest movie of 2019, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. This may be the biggest movie of a lot of years, actually. And <laughs> may be the biggest movie of the 2010s. I want to make a, I want to make a comment about that, uh, just real quick. <laughs> and hello. Yeah, and hello. Well, it's good to see you or hear you and both, you know, with that kind of thing. I recently, I think I've mentioned this to you and, and other people have seen it on social media that I got a really great book from my wife that argues that 1999 was the best year ever for movies. I'm feeling like 2019 might be a contender, not just in terms of the big ones, because we've got endings of two big sagas, this being one and then Star Wars being another, but there are also several other big movies coming out. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Disney is king. Maybe that's going to have some kind of effect. But I wonder if there might be a follow up. Why 2019 comes into a close second or maybe surpasses 1999 but it's it's pretty big man i mean 2019 is i don't know it's uh wow that's all i can really say <laughs> well this is definitely going to be the biggest year ever for blockbusters and that's largely due to disney um they're gonna i mean they've already blown the record off with just this movie alone so they're mm -hmm. going to continue to do that i think as a studio the studio is going to blow the box office down remember the final star wars movie is coming Yes. Lion King and Aladdin are coming. Spider-Man yeah. Far From Home is coming. I mean, these are just the Disney movies. Like, and there's more Disney movies than that. There's Maleficent 2. Um, you know, it's not to mention a new Fast and the Furious movie, which typically those, I mean, I know it's not a mainline movie, but they, those have done a billion dollars as well. So we yeah. are seeing the actual landscape of the theatrical world change before our eyes in a big way this yeah. year yeah it's a, it's a it's a weird thing and a big thing and a wonderful thing all at once if you guys have not clued in yet we are talking of course about avengers endgame a story 10 years and 22 films in the making it's impossible to cover everything possible surrounding this movie but we will definitely do our best to talk about as much as we can so let's not waste any more time with introductions aaron we are officially in the end game now. This is your obligatory spoiler warning, and we do this every week, but for this particular movie, we are absolutely telling you stop listening right now if you have not seen the movie. If you're a new listener, thanks for tuning in, but turn us off right now and go see Endgame because every bit of this movie is worth seeing as blind as you can. The internet has gone crazy with folks that have spoiled it and beatings have taken place. Celebrities have been banned from Twitter. Other things have happened. So this is one of those times when we absolutely say we are officially saying we are not going to be responsible for anything after this in terms of spoilers, because this is where it gets crazy. But that being said, welcome to a good discussion on Avengers Endgame. Here come the spoilers. Let's talk with our one word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? All right, man, I'd be happy to. Um, well, my one word takeaway was closure. Let me get this out of the way 
right up, right up front. I think that Avengers Infinity War, yes, that's that's the movie before the one that we're talking about, was the perfect penultimate chapter in this saga. And I think it brilliantly balanced so many characters and arcs, and it emotionally set up this thrilling conclusion for Endgame. I think that Endgame is an imperfect finale, at least for me. Despite having less characters to focus on, I felt that it lost its way at times, and that it often becomes too complex for its own good, frankly. But what it got right is the most important thing, and that was providing this sense of closure to this 22-film saga, and particularly the character arcs of its two leading men, Captain America and Iron Man. It was such a rousing experience, Patrick, from start to finish, you know, taking us through exciting highs and these crushingly sad lows, leading us all the way to this climax that was so full of fan service and, oh my god, that just happened moments that I'm still in awe of how it all comes together. And in the end, I was able to walk away from this MCU experiment saga unique experience like like it was clearly set up for the future but also like the stories of these original avengers is finally complete and that's something we rarely ever feel in a comic or an adapted film and to me that's an achievement worth all of our praise and respect so i was emotionally satisfied and that makes me very happy yeah i was too and your your word is completely up there in in agreement with mine which is culmination in-game does so much in its three-hour runtime, but more than anything else, it's taking what the original Avengers movie did for these six mighty heroes, successfully bringing them all together on the big screen, which was really unprecedented at the time, and it amplifies that tenfold by bringing in a decade-plus worth of storylines to a fitting conclusion. This is truly a culmination of great characters, great stories, and a fitting exclamation point to a 22-film narrative. I'm saying that again. 22 films. Celebrating the past but not ignoring the present is what a successful culmination of the MCU should look like. And Endgame did just that. There's this great quote from Tony in the movie where he says, Bring back what we lost? I hope. Yes. Keep what I found? Have to. At all costs. That line to me, I think, synopsises, if that's a word, it, it really sums up for me what I think Endgame did so successfully. Pays homage to the past and makes it effective for the present and, as you mentioned, leaves a future wide open for new stories to be told. It's a fantastic movie, and I walked away from it thinking... Man, I don't think I felt this great about a movie since 2012 when the original Avengers hit. And I still have vivid memories of walking out of the theater saying, wow, this is going to be a great summer because that was the big kickoff for the summer of 2012. And leaving Endgame, there is a lot of emotional weight. I mean, there was a lot riding on this from a standpoint of how is it going to end? What's going to happen? But there's something interesting, not just about the end or the destination, 
but really about the journey. And that's what I kind of want to open our conversation with is talking about the road to end game, this, this not contest, but this journey that as a Facebook group and as individuals, several of us, you being one decided to go on by rewatching all of the movies in their release order and having great discussion along the way. Aaron, you had a chance to do this, and I wanted to get your perspective on how it affected your viewing of Endgame. Well, what you're referencing truly was a memorable experience for me, and I know for so many others uh, of our listeners. For those of you that are not aware, we have a Feel and Film Facebook discussion group. I don't know how you could be a listener and not know that because we promote the group all the time, but maybe you're a new listener. This is your first episode. So in this Phelan Film Facebook discussion group, where all are welcome, by the way, just hit the link in the show notes and come join. We've been going on this thing we called hashtag road to Endgame. This started back in the beginning of December, Patrick. I think it was like the second week of December. I mean, it was before I saw Aquaman. It was, it was so far ago, like it feels like a decade. And I, we've watched one movie every single week leading up to this week in Endgame. And each Saturday, I posted a new discussion post for that movie, and we all got to talk about it as we went through revisiting this series together. So amazing. It's such great insight in those comments, uh, in the discussion that was had. I will tell you, it enhanced my experience with Endgame a hundredfold, I believe. Mainly because Endgame turns out that it's this super character focused thing and not a big action packed movie until the last, you know, 45 minute climax or so. But it's really, really an emotionally dramatic movie for the big portion of its runtime. And me, because of going through all of these films again, I was very intimately familiar with the characters and the arcs. I was quickly and easily able to connect with them. I never felt lost because of the crazy time travel going back to relive certain moments from prior movies, things that are brought up about Thor Dark World that people who most likely have never watched that movie again since the first time they saw it may not remember. Things like, you know, the red stuff being inside Jane, things like that. I was remembering that because I watched that movie again a couple months ago. Um, honestly, I am just so pleased that I did this because I don't think I would have had nearly as powerful of an experience with Endgame without having gone through the series. And it, it this just cements my desire to continue doing this. I, I've been doing it now for a couple other things. I'm doing it for Star Wars right now, working through all of the Star Wars animated series and movies leading up to the final film in December of this year. I'm watching some Godzilla movies each week, getting prepared for Godzilla King of the Monsters. And I mean, it's just, it's been awesome, man. It's been so awesome. So I'm curious if any of that stuff hung you up because you did not get a chance to revisit all these movies. Yeah, I got through Thor and then life got in the way. And I have no problem admitting that or, you know, releasing the the reins on that because you got to make priorities for other things. And Regretfully, I wish I would have because of the fact that the movie did enough to clue me in to what was going on. 
and the movies that were used with the exception of dark world were ones that I was pretty familiar with. And so while my recognition of the, those was was good, it was not strong. And I think looking back on my movie experience, I felt like I missed out on a lot of other moments, a lot of other kind of, Oh wow. Things kind of like when you watch ready player one and you don't catch the thousand Easter eggs, you only catch like 150 or 200 of them and you feel a little cheated because you're like, man, I wish I knew what that reference was. But that being said, Endgame did enough for me in terms of reminding me of those moments, reminding me of the particular instances in these different movies that it helped give me context and helped me appreciate what was happening in Endgame. Not just reminding me of this is what happened during the Avengers or this is what happened during Guardians, but rather this is what's happening now. And I think that's really important to be able to do that because my wife, who is not necessarily someone who watches all the movies, uh, since we started this podcast, I think we've covered maybe four or five of the Marvel films. I can't remember specifically. I know we've probably covered... more than that is. Yeah. <laughs> There's just... like three a year. <laughs> yeah. It's just wacky, but I don't think we've covered the Avengers. Have we? Because no, it... we, we picked up mostly phase three when the podcast was going. So we haven't gone back and done anything prior to when we started the podcast in early 2015. That's true. So she has not been with me when we've seen most of these. Um, and so for, for my money, and for my personal experience, she and I watched Infinity War because I knew that was required viewing to understand what was going on. Essentially, this was part two of a two-part finale. And so all of her questions got asked in the safety of our living room where she could, and I didn't have to shush her and that kind of thing. And occasionally, you know, she would lean over and say, "What? who is that? Or is uh, what's he doing? And, and, you know, you just get a quick kind of like, this is what's going on. But... I, I think that, again, Endgame does enough because of the the great storytelling in it that you don't feel lost unless you've missed Infinity War, which I don't know why you would. Um, I think it is a solid second half to a two-part finale. And I think those moments, those elements of the time travel using previous movies to help elevate that story do more good than than harm and i think that it's an it's it's a great foundation and the plus ones at that point are the fan service that gets played to it so i I thought i thought it was great now this is a like we mentioned a 22 movie saga and i don't know that there's another franchise that has done this I think Harry Potter is the only one that comes close at eight. Eight? <laughs> that's not but, close. I'm saying that I know. I mean, if you're talking about that, that's I was talking to a coworker of mine, and we we were bringing this actual thing up about the importance of of Endgame in relation to the MCU as a whole, and we were talking in comparison with Harry Potter and how as great as Harry Potter is in its own right. One, it's a third of the movies. 
And two, it singles out one character throughout the entire journey. Whereas the MCU takes hold of at least a dozen. And I say that very, very conservatively, but at least your six Avengers and then all these supporting characters plus our tertiary bad guys in the individual movies and then Thanos, who basically gets his own origin story in Infinity War. And so you're talking about a culmination of close to 20 major characters deserving of their own movies and getting their own movies. How do you do that? How do you bring all those guys together and feel like you're giving a complete picture? And so I wanted to ask, how do you respond to something like this, to this 22 movie saga and its ending as opposed to something like Harry Potter? Well, it's very similar. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't think it's that different because screen time wise, I would wager that it's a lot closer than you think when you think 22 movie versus eight movie. The reason I say that is the main players, what Endgame does is it really does bring this back to the Avengers. And that's something I super appreciated. It focuses on Cap, Tony, Natasha, Hawkeye, Bruce. Like that, that's the key, right? If you think of those characters as the main players and you look at your Ron, Hermione, and Harry, screen time wise, over 22 movies, they probably are close to what these guys had over eight. You know what I'm saying? So, for me, the emotional connection and payoff for them was is very similar. The difference, obviously, being that there's so many of those kind of tertiary, off-to-the-side characters that you were talking about from these other movies that impact the story in a way, but they they were clearly there to drive forward dramatic arcs of the main characters in this case. So I think that it works out very much the same, and... They're both very much impactful because of all the time you've spent on screen with the characters. Yeah. When you and I were talking offline, I think you brought up the similarity to how this feels to a TV series finale. And when I was watching The West Wing and getting through the last couple of episodes, what I like to do as a coping mechanism with any series that I really love, uh, you don't know this about me, but when I watch a series from start to finish, when I get to the finale, I actually watch the pilot immediately right after because I don't want to say goodbye to the characters. And I also want to be reminded of where it all started. And I felt like this with Endgame. I left the theater wanting to go back and watch Iron Man again because I was kind of grieving. And to me, that says a lot about how much these creators have invested in the characters, in the stories, in the movies. And as much criticism as the MCU gets for having a stranglehold on its directors and writers, that's what you get right when you put all these things together. You create a moment. You create three hours in which you have people literally leaning forward in their seats wondering what's going to happen next. And I don't know that I've ever experienced that, or at least something not in the last three or four years from a movie franchise that has given me so much. 
people were talking to me tonight at our small group and they said, I heard people were crying when they left the theater. And I said, yeah, because there are characters that are no longer going to be a part of their cinematic world. My buddy from work, he said, I've spent 20% of my life enjoying the MCU. You know, he's in his 50s, you know, do the math. That says something, Aaron, about the fact that we've been living with these characters for half of our adult life. That we have, some people have grown up seeing Robert Downey Jr. as their Iron Man. I can't read a comic book with Iron Man without hearing his voice when I read the the lines on the page. Same thing with Chris Evans as Captain America. These are characters whose acting counterparts have completely embedded themselves in my brain and will always be that way. And I almost don't want to see anybody else take that mantle up as Steve Rogers or as Tony Stark. Right. It's very similar to the way we felt about Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings characters for me. Um, I would have lost my lid had we rebooted that TV series in Amazon and had someone else playing Aragorn or playing Gandalf, for example. We couldn't have handled that. Like They become those characters. I'm totally with you. I actually read the Harry Potter series. I started it reading the books after I started the movies. And so for me, that's them. You know what I mean? Even Even when I'm reading the comics for Aquaman now. The character looks very different than Jason Momoa, but I read them as if it's like, it's his voice to me. It's his, I can't separate those things. And for, for your, you're totally right. They've, they've put so much time of our lives into these characters now that they are, they're iconic. They're legendary. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And if we got something different, I think it would taint everything that the MCU has done thus far. And so in a lot of ways, like some of the themes of Endgame, you have to keep going forward. You're not changing the past. You're essentially trying to shape the future or save the future in order that you can move forward. And I, and I think that's something meta about the MCU is they don't, these creators don't want to go backwards and try to recapture something amazing. They want to build upon that for a future. And that takes a lot of guts. I mean, when you lose your two main players, excuse me, when you lose three of your six Avengers, you're asking a lot from a studio at that point, but you're asking a lot of trust in your audience to say, we trust what you guys are going to be doing. Now, there could be a cheat involved in doing prequels and, you know, pre Avenger stories. That's fine. As long as the storytelling's good. But at the same time, we know there's something coming after this. Phase four is going to bring with it new movies. And I don't think 10 years ago, an audience would have accepted what we're seeing here in the next two or three years. That says a lot about a studio to earn the trust of an audience like that. Yeah, I mean, the money speaks for itself, my friend. Like, $1.2 billion. That's what they have pegged it at right now for an opening weekend internationally, which literally doubles the number two and three now all-time films for their international opening weekend. One was in the 560 million range and one was in the 600 million range. So 1.2 eclipsed them both together. It's 
It's not by accident, right? That's the key thing that you have to keep in mind here. And I think everybody is realizing this, at least what I see in reviews, both critically and from fan perspective, is an absolute acknowledgement of the craft and attention that has gone into making this saga connected and work. And Endgame pulls that all together when you see these moments from the past that pay off these things way, way, way later. It's happening in Game of Thrones right now simultaneously. We're seeing prophecies fulfilled that haven't been mentioned since season one, literally almost 10 years ago. And it's a phenomenal feeling when you've invested in something that long to have that pay off. You feel so satisfied. You feel like you, feel like you own it. You know, you feel like you're yeah. in it, man. I mean, there is nothing like that in a film. And I'm not, this does not mean blockbusters better than indie or any of that crap, but like, one single movie, no matter what, can never give you that same sense. It's impossible. And it it's literally impossible to do that because time creates it. Yes. And I would venture to say not even a trilogy can do that as effectively because there's something about longevity that I think strengthens that. And I think there's a reason why we have an episode seven, eight, and nine of our Star Wars saga now. Because people want to own that complete history. I mean, starting from 1977 and ending in 2019, we're talking nine movies in, what, 50 years? To me, I'm going to say that's, for my money, that's not as effective as what the MCU has done because you've done more movies in less time. But the same idea surrounds the Star Wars saga and why I think people get such so passionate about the Star Wars saga, you know, and what happened with The Last Jedi and why you have such a divisive community and healthy or unhealthy, why you get what we got surrounding the Star Wars universe in terms of some of the hatred, some of the overemphasized fandom, because people own that. People own that sometimes to a fault, maybe sometimes religiously to a point where it becomes unhealthy, but the truth is still there. You've spent so much time growing up with a character or a, or a group of characters. You and I have that in a small way with our Fast and the Furious characters. We do. We certainly do. And when we, when we, when we lose a character like Brian in actual, in actuality, it's devastating. It's not because we feel like we know him personally, but because our time at the movie theater, our time with these characters feels somewhat personal. You know, we can quote what they say and, and it's fun. Same thing with these, with these superheroes. And I think there's something really special about that in terms of storytelling. Yeah, I think that exists with books as well, but it's more personal because you're not going to a big giant book club with a bunch of other people on a Friday night, it's usually like maybe you or you and three or four other people around a coffee table talking about this, but the impact is personal, but I think there's something about that community that makes it even more impactful. You mentioned earlier that infinity war was pretty much the perfect penultimate movie to this entire thing. And I'd have to agree. I mean, I think we both agree that it's pretty much flawless, giving us both what we wanted 
in a Marvel movie? Stakes. So seeing Endgame not having that perfection, I wonder what was it about Endgame that didn't quite live up to what you wanted? Um, That's a big question. Um, <laughs> there are, there's more than one thing that I think I would say if I was going to list off issues I have with the film. Um, the big thing that it comes down to is stakes. And I say that in an, in, it's interesting that I, the way that I have to do this in my brain. So I'm going to work through this a little bit. When I watched this Game of Thrones episode tonight, the Battle of Winterfell, the longest ever filmed cinematic battle in a movie or TV ever. It harkened back very much so to Lord of the Rings, Battle of Helm's Deep, Battle of the Pelennor Fields, some of the other big medieval battles that we've seen. And it actually helped put some things in perspective for Endgame. Because what I realized is that the climactic... 45 minutes, 30 minute battle scene in Endgame that this is all building to that ends up becoming this literally massive large scale thing with hundreds of superheroes slash wizards, you know, sidekicks versus Thanos and his minions and aliens and whatever else. The difference is one of them is based on the idea of realism and that you truly are going to lose heroes, that you can lose heroes, while the other is built around giving the audience cinematic moments of fan service. And I know we're going to talk later about like what those moments are in this movie that we loved, but just conceptually, it's not built around us constantly thinking we're going to lose character X, Y, or Z. It really isn't. If you want, I mean, there are moments where the, the the battle tries to kind of like make us think like, oh, this person's you know hurt, but they're never really in danger. And for me, watching this that first time, it was kind of off-putting in a sense that you would have this massive, incredibly ma- huge battle, and Thanos was largely winning, and yet nobody was getting hurt or dying. It just didn't make sense. But when you think about it in terms of Fan service versus stakes. It helped me to accept it a little more. Like that's not what this movie's going for. Um, and what I love is that when you pair them together in Infinity War, you got the stakes. Infinity War was about that. It was not about that fan service stuff. I mean, we got moments like Thor coming down with Stormbreaker, you know, that awesome scene where he goes lightning for the first time, things like that. But it felt like it was all about like the heaviness of the snap that was impending. Whereas this one, in the end, the heaviness was all dealt with previously dramatically. Now, overall, man, it, it was just a combination of things. Like the time travel, I will say the time travel, I know we're probably going to talk about it too, but that was one thing that really gave me fits. I was not a huge fan of Fat Thor and the amount of time we spent with Fat Thor. I didn't love the way that the action scene was shot in the end. It felt very incoherent to me. I didn't think it was at all some of the best action we've seen in the MCU, especially not from the Russo's brothers. And then I felt like there were a few moments of 
pretty lazy deus ex machina type moments in this film couple that you know this movie is really difficult because between it and infinity war and you you kind of have to take them together they are in a sense they're two pieces of a whole even though they're very tonally kind of different in ways and i'm trying to be fair there but Infinity War never made me feel like something was just randomly happening at the last second. And and I will point to one thing specifically right in the beginning. Tony is about to die. He is literally being put up by Nebula to see the space and look out on the horizon and take his final breath. And Captain Marvel appears. Out of nowhere, there's no reason for her to appear. No one from Earth has sent her to see him because she hasn't met them yet. She just appears in space in this random point in time immediately as Tony is about to take his last breath. It's a nitpick. And I would say almost everything I have with this film are nitpicks. They don't ruin the experience for me, but they make me take a brief pause and go, ugh, and then I move on to the next scene. So there were some of those things for me that just didn't flow perfectly in my enjoyment. Like there were a little bit of bumps in the road, I guess. But yeah, man, that's that's really it. I mean... I loved the movie. I, I just thought coming in, this is a, I am, I'm a victim of hype. I'm a victim of what we all were, which is the excitement of expecting another five star ending to what we got to a five star start in, in Infinity War for most of us. And when it didn't quite hit that high, I think that the distance between wanting it to be so perfect made what ultimately ended up as like my four star love of this film feel worse than it really is. <laughs> if that, I mean, it's just, but I, I mean, I love it. It's great. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. And could it have been better? I think, yes, it could have been better, but I'm not at all unsatisfied. Like I said. Yeah. I would say that in Infinity War put the expectations of Endgame on a level that I don't know that it could ever match subjectively speaking I mean, there are several people who have already come back and said best marvel movie ever jeff norman one of our listeners is one of those guys and i love that i love the fact that you have movies that completely satisfy that give you that exclamation point where you can leave the theater and going i can die a happy person now because the circle is now complete the end has come and I don't need to see anymore. I don't need, I've got my closure, as you mentioned. At the same time, I would agree that there are things about in-game that frustrate me. Time travel being one of them. But also like you, I'm not going to let those things deter how much I really did enjoy this. And on second viewing, probably not in the theater because I don't know that I have that time. I will, I want to watch this movie again. This is not one that is like, oh, great experience. And I'll just catch it whenever I can. This will go in our voodoo library at some point. I think, I don't think we own Infinity War, which that needs to be corrected at some point. Mm -hmm. But I think that. When you have two movies like this, I think you have a logical, emotional 
arc that goes from lighthearted to the darkest dark, which is the snap. And then you have a moment where, to me, I think the team comes together and starts doing the time travel thing in the second act that starts building back into the what becomes the real third act of this two movie uh, thing, two movie narrative. And so from that, I can be a lot more forgiving of the last 45 minutes because it didn't feel rushed. I thought that there were some really great moments where Thanos got to say what he needed to. I love, love, love his speech about this time around. I'm going to wipe out everything because yeah, brilliant. Nobody's going to He know. learned from it. He learned he from his mistake. Yeah. He did. And he still thinks something that I loved from Infinity Wars. He still thinks that he is destined to do this. It takes someone with that kind of will Resolve, to be able yeah. resolve to make those kinds of decisions. And I think that's what makes it, Josh Brolin's just fantastic in this, by the way. He's so good. And so I don't think anything's lost in that regard. But you're right. There were moments where they seem to play more towards satisfying an audience's reaction, which the theater I was in, man, did it react. Like when when Captain America wielded Thor's hammer, that got a big hula. I think it was effective, but I think it was more for fan service than anything else. From a narrative standpoint, could I have made a different decision? No, I'm not going to. So anytime I don't have anything to fall back on saying this would probably have been a better idea, I'm going to go ahead and just say that's a nitpick, and I was fine with it. But it did kind of not work for me quite as much. And and overall, I left the theater going, that was wonderful. <laughs> that really was a fit, a fitful ending to such a great, uh, impactful story. And speaking of impact, you have this hype that you mentioned. You have social media going dark for a lot of people, including myself. You have the Russo brothers sending out a letter that says, don't spoil the end game, which I don't know that I've ever seen creators do this because they understand the weight of what this movie is to cinematic culture, to world culture, to comic book culture. In a lot of ways, I think that end game represents what pop culture has become, what San Diego Comic-Con has become as a pop culture mecca, as opposed to just being a comic book geek nerd um, place for people to hang out. It's become cool to be a fan of superheroes. It's become cool to be a fan of this pop culture. And Avengers Endgame, I think, represents that to an extent. So I'm wondering, what do you think the impact of what the MCU done has done over the last 11 years has, what kind of impact has it had culturally and maybe even theatrically to our love of movies and superheroes and whatnot? Well, it's reinvigorated the superhero industry and it has largely in so many ways, I truly believe started shifting the continuation of comic book superheroes from paper to film and to TV because the audience is just so much wider. 
Um, we've read articles about DC Comics having to cut back, um, running into losses in monetarily. I think that it's becoming a primary form of storytelling for this, and, it, and it's just totally like found this new audience. And we see that with, you know, Disney Plus coming out with, they're going to have all of these new superhero TV shows as well that tie into the MCU, yada, yada. Um, I think that it has brought people together, like you just mentioned with the Comic Con type reference. There is a fandom around this that is incredible. Um, there's a big threat on our Facebook group right now where we got into a big argument slash debate slash discussion. Um, and part of it was, you know, someone just, talking about how much he just loves talking about this movie and these movies and sharing it with other fans. This is one of those rare once in a lifetime experiences in the theater. Like you mentioned the hooping and the hollering and the screaming. I can't remember much like that uh, outside of, I actually don't even remember what else would have been like this. Maybe the star Wars prequel, the first one, I remember going to that at midnight and it was pretty crazy and intense. So, it's like once in a generation for the most part. And it's, it's very memorable. I think that it has obviously changed the way that the theater business is run. As I mentioned earlier with how much money this, these blockbusters are making and specifically these universes, the MCU has spawned so many other studios to try and create universes now and tie. And we have a conjuring universe for, for, for crying out loud. You know what I mean? Like everybody wants in on this. And some of them work, some of them absolutely do not work. Like the DCEU was kind of not done the right way, kind of started to fail in some aspects, at least it did financially. Um, the Dark Universe, like I don't know, the one that was supposed to kick off with the Mummy and Tom Cruise, like that one fell on its face. But like this new Godzilla series is a universe. We have the Fast and the Furious universe. Like everything is wanting to be interconnected because they see the benefits of that both financially and from a fan obsession standpoint. I also believe that it's going to have a negative effect, to be honest with you, that's about to hit. Because this has been building for so many years for a saga. Now, maybe Marvel's good enough to quickly get us tied into something else new. We will see. It really is going to depend on how they leverage Captain Marvel, Black Panther and the Guardians to usher in these new characters and new teams that nobody knows about yet. I mean, the Guardians were like that, and it worked out just fine. But they have some work to do. I think that there's going to be a lull, not necessarily in, I mean, box office probably, but like excitement-wise, it's just we're not building to anything, and that's where I personally find myself noticing that I have learned I am more about the journey than the end. Endgame showed me I loved looking forward to Endgame way more than I enjoyed Endgame. And, and that sounds weird, kind of, but like, I, I almost don't want things to end. Like, when they're this good in this kind of series, I dread the finality that comes with it being over. Because then it's gone. But I love that feeling of looking forward to it so much. Like, talking about this next episode of Game of Thrones that's coming on and what who's going to die and having those conversations. But once the episode happens and we know who dies, it's like, it's over. Like, okay, now what, what is there to look forward to? And so I've found that myself, 
I just eat up the looking forward to aspect. And with MCU now, it's going to struggle for a bit because people like me don't have that thing to look forward to. And they're going to have to recreate that. Yeah, it's it literally is a new universe that as fans we're going to be living in. And what's going to be interesting, Aaron, you mentioned that the Guardians did well. I think because they were a part of an already established narrative that was moving forward. I'm not sure because I don't remember specifically thinking this, but the Infinity Stones after Avengers, that tease for Thanos at the end of Avengers, the first big tease for the big baddie, which was amazing. Of course, in credit sequences, in credit scenes were not uncommon by this point. You already had like three or four movies that did this to bring about the Avengers. But when the, when the guardians of the galaxy came out and the first thing we see is Quill stealing one of the stones, to me, it was a reminder that guardians is a part of a bigger thing that the guardians will play a part in a bigger narrative. And so I think the biggest challenge is going to be for Marvel to say, how can these characters that aren't part of the big six, the three that are left, what do we do with them? Do they have team-up movies? It appears that that's probably going to happen with Guardians 3 and Thor. Are there going to be more... God, I know I know we're going to talk about what we hope for later, but man, if there's anything I want more than anything, Patrick, it's what you just said. So (laughs) please, please. The the chemistry between the Chris's is is just it's yeah, it's fantastic. Um, So so I don't know. And I and I think you're right. When you have something this big, you're breathing a collective sigh of. Wow. But then we're. What's next? Do you want anything to be next? Because I'm kind of on the opposite end. I kind of, I kind of wanted Endgame to be the end of Marvel. Like, these are your all-stars and you've given them a definitive ending. Let them go have their stories not on the big screen. I like it as well. However, I'm with you as well with that, but I, I think I understand now why Kevin Feige has made Spider-Man Phase 3's end. Spider-Man Far From Home now, we know it happens after Endgame. It's going to be the getting back to normal transition movie that shows us how we deal with going from this ending to the world coming back after five years and restarting itself and specifically how the characters that are left move on. And I'm interested in that. But once we get past Spider-Man Far From Home... I feel the way you do, and I almost, I, I seriously almost wish there was going to be like a mandated, guaranteed, like, two-year gap. Because then you would let me have some anticipation again for what's coming next. And I actually don't know when their next movie is after Spider-Man. I haven't looked, so maybe there is going to be a gap. But I think that that would do them some good. Yeah, especially when they've got Disney Plus rolling around, and maybe they're going to hang out on the small screen and spend more time doing that. Who knows? But you're right. Spider-Man Far From Home looks to be, it is the end of phase three, and it looks to be a transition story to get us back into the world that we need to get used to again. 
and not in a grieving sense necessarily. <laughs> but we'll see. It actually makes me a little bit more intrigued about how Far From Home is going to end. The fact that it takes place five years in the future, which just blows my mind. So let me let me go to that for a minute, maybe for longer than a minute, depending on if we're in the quantum realm. But the main crux of Endgame centers around time travel. But surprisingly for me, it wasn't what I expected. Um, going back to the pre-snap and stopping Thanos. Instead, if you need to be reminded, it was to go back to the moments where Infinity Stones could be taken, gather them together, come back to the present, and then use the stones together to bring everybody back to the present. Was that narrative choice better than what at least I expected? First of all, did you expect what I expected? And if you did, did you like that narrative choice more? So I expected time travel because, frankly, they put themselves into a situation where they were either going to have to leave half their heroes dead, and we knew that wasn't going to happen. Um, and this goes back to that, like, difference of, like, something like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, fantasy battles, and then this, where comic book world, when people die, you expect them to come back. That's, like, what you, you, you know, the odds are in that favor versus the odds of them not coming back. Whereas in, like, realistic-type battle scenarios, when you get shocking deaths, they're more powerful because you don't expect that. It's just a different type of storytelling, frankly. I'm not calling one better or another, but it's it's what you know. So your head, your brain tells you that you're going to spend all this time now trying to calculate and figure out what are they going to do to bring them back. So we all believed it had to be the time stone, right? Somehow, some way, it's going to be the time stone. Doctor Strange kind of made it seem like that. We know that that is what that time freaking stone, infinity stone does. So that's what I thought it was going to be. Um, I was a little bit surprised, maybe less surprised once I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp and kind of got like some hints that the quantum realm would be much more in play. Another deus ex machina type moment, you know, is when that rat like magically lets Scott out of the freaking quantum realm five years later. It, it just, that, that kind of stuff was like, to me again, lazy, like, okay, I get it. I think they bit off more. They could chew narratively trying to make that work. I also, at the same time, do not envy the task of trying to calculate a way to do this and bring all these people back. And I think overall, you know, it's very successful, but the way in which it's done made me start to think that Aaron, who used to love time travel and used to say he loved time travel movies, needs to amend that statement because I did not love it. And it left me feeling like I had questions to things that took away from the emotional impact for me because my focus was drawn to wanting to figure out the time travel. And I hate it. Like, I just wish you wouldn't have given me something to, to distract me, if that makes sense. And I also was like, man, this is going to be complicated for younger viewers and for people who are not great time travel veterans they're gonna get lost like two nebulas was a real big conundrum for me i was a little bit lost myself at moments of like when they were when one nebula was 
getting signals from the other Nebula. And, I mean, that's all on top of the fact that Nebula, who has been this completely minor character, unless you're really a big fan of the two Guardians movies, and specifically the second Guardians movie. Otherwise, completely minor, minor side character, who's getting this huge arc of being a main player all of a sudden, that comes out of nowhere. So when you put that all in her, and you do this time travel, it's complicated. And so I I have a love-hate relationship, man. And, it, and it's unfortunately what I think they kind of had to do. And it gives us all those great kind of fan service moments of going back to revisit the movies with characters that are already dead, like Loki. It's a way of bringing him into this movie. It's a way of bringing the Ancient One into this movie. That was fun, but it doesn't work for the logical side of my brain that wants it all to connect and make sense. Yeah, completely on board with that. And yet I'm torn because I thought that this way of unconventional time travel was so original, so refreshing from what I was normally used to. And I think it upped my enjoyment as well as my confusion. And so I had this duality in me of going, that really frustrated me, but I'd rather be frustrated and awed as opposed to not frustrated and meh when it comes to a story like this. There's a there's an article I was reading on Screen Rant and uh, there's a quote that says, time travel functions in fiction entirely on stated logic within the story at hand. There is no true rule to time travel, which means every movie can create new ideas. And I don't disagree with that. I couple that with the line from, I think it was Brody, who said, Back to the Future is BS. <laughs> because that's the logic that most of us know. The grandfather paradox that if you go back in the past, it changes the future. Don't interact. But we get, we clearly get two conversations, one by Bruce that says, no, that's not the case. You can go back and you can interact with the past and you can steal stones that have irreputable effects on the future. But instead of creating a new future for you, they actually create alternate timelines so the explanation of those things to me is the get out of jail free card it's me saying okay i understand that i still have questions but i'm willing to understand it i'm willing to accept that because you're explaining it to me and i'm not in another movie that contradicts that you're taking this logic when you start overlapping stuff and when you start doing things that sort of contradict that that's when I get a little frustrated. So two things stand out to me, and they both involve our friend Steve Rogers. When he goes back to return the stones to their rightful places, one, he returns the soul stone to Red Skull, which is really interesting. I don't know how that Supposedly how. Yeah, I don't know how either. How he does that. Does that mean that Black Widow is somehow alive? Apparently not, because what's happened happened. Even though you return the Soul Stone back to its original place, I don't know how you do that. The second thing is that he now chooses to live in 1940 and get his life that he wants to live with Peggy Carter. From a narrative standpoint, this is perfect. I love it. I love the ending of Steve Rogers. It's fitting and it makes sense to him. 
but it frustrates the crap out of me because it feels like it goes against the logic of what the movie is trying to tell us. And I think that for my money, that's where fan service overtakes proper narration, proper storytelling. I get why it was done. I, to a point, agree with it. And I like the fact that we didn't get a conventional way of traveling through time. I'm willing to accept it, but like you, there's something about it and something in my veteran time travel loving brain that says I can't accept this without seeing more movies that do this on a regular basis. Because the fact is, we've gotten more movies about the grandfather paradox, a la Back to the Future, Time Cop, you know, take your pick, more so than this whole quantum realm, the past is the future and the future is the, is the present and all that stuff that it's not enough for me as an audience to get used to that in a three-hour time span. If I were to watch it multiple times, which will probably happen at some point, I will probably accept that more as the reality. But the fact is it's not up to the Russo brothers to convince people that they should just accept it. I mean, it's their movie. They can do what they want. There was enough about it that left a sting in me, but not enough to make the movie feel like it was like poop, you know? So you were off social media until you saw the film Saturday afternoon, Mm -hmm. which means you didn't get to be a part of the Thursday night through Saturday Aaron dealing with his conundrum of time travel online with people who didn't have this conundrum. Um, So there was some big, I had some big Twitter conversations about this. Uh, We had some talk in private messages, tried to keep it off of, you know, Facebook where people could see, obviously I am so torn and I'm will say that every single time I've ever watched a, sa- a Marvel movie more than once or a second time, my feelings have either, they've either stayed the same or gotten better the second time. So I'm pretty sure that most of these nitpicks are going to fall away for me, just like they did with the Captain Marvel movie. Once I get a chance to rewatch it. And like you, ultimately I land on the side of, I like the ending because my favorite character, the character who, when I take quizzes, I identify with his idealism. Um, like, I love Steve Rogers. If you look at my pop collection, you know this. So I wanted happiness for him. The time travel definitely didn't work for me because if he goes back, he creates a splintered timeline. He cannot show up on that bench in the present. The only way for him to come back to them is through using the time machine, which he is no longer wearing on his wrist, and he doesn't come through the time machine, he shows up on the bench. It just doesn't work. And I hate it when a movie breaks its own rules, and I felt like it did that, and so again, it distracted me some. A little. Not a lot, a little. Narratively, I'm still torn. I want happiness for Cap. I feel like his goal has always been, personally, to have that last dance with Peggy, to marry her that's what he wanted was to grow old with her and we get to see it and it's so sweet especially coming after what we see happen to tony but when you start to think about it logically captain america as a person his traits the way that his mind works the determination and the commitment to the good and to being a hero for others Do you truly believe that he could go back in time, 
watch all of the events happen that actually play out in the timeline. Hydra taking over S.H.I.E.L.D., World Wars, the alien invasion in New York, and sit at home on the porch with Peggy watching that happen on TV and not be involved because he's now having his moment. The only way that plays out for me in my head is if there's another Captain Rogers in that same timeline who's doing all of those things and he's chilling at home, not interacting with that Steve. Again, I've done so much math on this already and I don't think it checks out based on the movie rules, but ultimately I am having to make the choice to say I have to turn my brain off and like the emotional impact that it gives me because I love that Steve gets Peggy and that they get to have their time and I will drive myself crazy if I try to make it work. And Patrick, it reminded me so much of when Spider-Man, what's that, uh, Into the Spider-Verse was about to come out. Remember, I told you I want to read this before it does. Uh I picked up the comic. I don't know if you recall, but like I read like an episode or not an episode. I read a couple issues and I stopped because I was so confused by the different timelines and the different alternate realities. One thing I really appreciated about the movie is it condensed it into a understandable, non-complex thing. Uh But I, I have to let myself go in order to enjoy this. And I wish that that wasn't the case, but ultimately, you said it. The fan service, it outweighs my need for logical realism. So let's talk a little bit about fan service, because there was there was a little bit of it in there. Just a tad. A little? <laughs> a little? A lot. Yeah, there was a little. I'm bathing in sarcasm right now. Can you see it? It's like, like molasses. It's just dripping off of me. Fan service, a lot like intertextuality that we have talked about several times on this show is for my money, both a good thing and a bad thing. There is a huge amount of it in Endgame for good reasons and for, in my opinion, not so good reasons. But for you, did you feel like there was an imbalance of fan service for the amount of movie that we got, do you feel like there was too much, not enough? Um, I was, I felt it was overwhelming. I think that I'm fine with most of it. I felt a couple things were, were forced. Um, there's a specific shot in the middle of the battle where randomly, for no reason, all of the female superheroes fly into the frame together. It's like the only shot we get like of a Koye, which sucks because she's awesome. And Pepper, who's shown up in a suit for the first time, like out of nowhere, supposedly trained and able to fight, you know, alien invasions just fine. And we it's 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 literally shot in a very distinct like, hey, girl power way. And they boom and they fly through in this awesome thing. I didn't like it. I love seeing those superheroes fight. I did. I like seeing Spider-Man swinging off of Valkyrie's Pegasus. That was badass. But like that felt forced to me. I will say this. I asked two different people. One is one of our listeners, Renee, and one was my daughter when I was talking to them about favorite scenes. And they both immediately pointed to this scene as one of their absolute favorite moments in the entire movie. So I will relent and say that that's a piece of fan service that was not meant for me. And that it hit its target audience exactly how it was intended to. And so I have to accept that. Um, but for me, overall, I loved the fan service. 
And I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. And I realized just started to come to this realization right before we started recording was that you have to like bathe in that being the primary thing about this movie. And if you don't, it starts to just wear you down (laughs) because there is so much fan service going back to all the different areas and the different quips and, you know, mentioning things from past films. But I had so much fun with it, largely because I'd done all of those rewatches. So there is a there's a conundrum that I have because this comes partly from not participating in the road to endgame is that I didn't pick up on a lot of the the fan stuff. I and I was okay with that. I felt like a for the most part a lot of it felt purposeful. Going back to these moments was purposeful more than it was fan service. Fan service became a plus one at that point. But it got me thinking about Cobra Kai that I've been so incredibly excited about season two ever since it was announced last year, I guess. And I remember I started watching it. I'm on this third episode. I just finished the first two. And I actually enjoyed this one, this season, more than last season's. and. I think the reason why oh, I'm only two episodes in, so that's not really a great sample size. It's like a fifth of the show, though. True. That's true. And it may go downhill from here. But from what I've gotten so far, what I felt like the weak point of season one for me early on, and it got better, was the heavy reliance on that fan service. Was calling back as much as possible to the original movie, making quick jokes here and there, which were funny at first, but it didn't give me a chance to really enjoy where we are now. And I really believe that in game as a story balanced that out to an extent. I mean, there were some parts that I felt were kind of like eye rolls to me, but they weren't enough obviously to make me upset because I think what in game did was it created avenues for me to appreciate the past but knowing that the present was where the value was at it did it in a meta way by bringing the fight to the present Mm -hmm. or in in their case 2022 or where five years and yeah 2024 yeah their present which you know is you know our future at this point but i think that when you can do that when you can provide that kind of fan service that enhances the narrative, just like intertextuality does that. That's what makes it valuable because you're getting that, you're getting that, that endorphin kick of like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just saw that. And at the same time, it's progressing the narrative. It's not just there for you to get a, Oh wow moment. Ready player one had that same kind of thing. It was overwhelmingly fan fiction and Easter eggs, but it was meant to be that way because that's what it is. It's one giant Easter egg. And when it came to Endgame, because of the weight of the narrative, because of the weight of the story, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we were getting throwbacks and lines just for the sake of remembering, but for the fact that it's important to where we are now. Absolutely. And, And I don't know who said this on my Facebook at one point, but somebody had pointed it out. 
that final battle, as much as I felt like it's in a lot of ways incoherent action and there's just so much going on and there's a lack of like people getting hurt, all that, it looks like comic book two page splash. That's what it's supposed to look like. Like that's the point. So you have to be evaluating and considering within the genre itself. And I think that's where so many critical reviewers, professional film critics who've been low on comic book movies as a genre don't have that context. They are just not approaching these films from the place of looking at it as a visual representation of a comic book that you just read right there in your hands. They're looking at it, comparing it to the film history genre. You know what I mean? And it's, and you, it's different. It's just different. And so they're trying to do different things. And so in this case, it works because it's succeeding at its goal. Whereas other movies or other shows might not. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And in a battle like that, you mentioned earlier that you kind of expected more death. That was something that I was kind of curious about going into Endgame was who was going to die because somebody's going to. And I don't like knowing stuff from a business standpoint. I don't like knowing that there's a Spider-Man movie coming out after this or a Guardians 3 or a, you know, whatever, because essentially one of the arguments that was made, and I kind of fall on this side of the argument, is that. When you have a snap that destroys or kills half of all life and one of those guys is Spider-Man, you're like, well, I guess he's coming back because he's got his own movie. That's a true statement. But it doesn't mean that other characters are going to die. My wife was asking me when um, when we saw one of the characters, I can't remember her name, Red, Red Power. Scarlet Witch. Scarlet Witch, thank you. Because I keep thinking Scarlett Johansson, and it's you know different, but that's black. I know red. Black Widow. Yeah, anyway. So when Scarlet Witch makes her appearance at the battle, my wife looks at me and, and she says, "Where's Vision?" And I said, "He was killed pre-snap, remember? So he's actually dead. Like he is no longer alive." I I watched this movie and I was like, "Okay, is it going to be Cap? Is it going to be?" Is it going to be Iron Man? Is it going to, who's it going to be? Who's going to die? And knowing that both Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans' contracts are coming to an end, what does that mean for the movie? Well, one of them's going to die, right? Were you surprised at the one, the number of deaths or with the characters that actually were killed off? So yes, absolutely was surprised. I thought we would get more. Didn't necessarily think we would get major character deaths, but that we would get some side characters killed off. And it's a two-edged sword, frankly, with knowing that contracts are up and that they have to write these two characters out of the saga in some way. You go into it with a certain sense of understanding that doesn't allow you to let it come to you without your brain unintentionally trying to figure things out as you go. And um, again, with the comparison to Game of Thrones, because these are two huge sagas that are ending like literally simultaneously right now, when a TV show is ending, all of the characters are ending at the same time. So you just don't have that worry. You don't you don't have to you don't know that 
Jon Snow has a five-year contract after season eight's finale. So Jon Snow's fate depends on, you know, him having a job because they've already got something they need to plan for him to do. Like with Bucky Barnes, Bucky couldn't die. Bucky has a contract. We know he's going to be back kind of thing. So it plays into things. It does. Um, I will say I, w- I wouldn't say I was disappointed other than a little disappointed in the battle that there wasn't more long-term. I guess, yeah, I was, I wanted more death. I wanted to see more, whether it was major heroes or somebody. I wanted to see Thanos's powerful fighting them back. What looked like he was literally able to still overwhelm the Avengers. Wanted to see that actually significant and it didn't feel like it was all the time. But the deaths we got made me weep like a baby. I did not expect Nat to die. Because we all know that she is like the only one that still has another movie coming of the Avengers. She's She's got a solo film coming. She's the last one I probably would have guessed, to be honest. And that that's a great bit of twisting up from Marvel. That scene, Patrick, was... I'm, I'm intentionally not calling it my connecting point because I want to talk about it more in depth here with you, but like, that's my connecting point. Like if I, you know what I mean? Like that moment with the soul stone was the fa- my favorite thing in the entire film because I was so emotionally connected at that point. It was one of the most powerful moments of the entire 22 films. Watching them as best friends fight each other for the, the right to die. For each other and for the world it was so hard and i honestly thought about you because i thought like these are two best friends like fighting each other to be and and what would it be like to be put in that situation and i was imagining like us doing the same thing knowing we both have families like knowing we both want each other to be able to go on and have their life with their family and yet they both want to sacrifice and they can't and some of the dialogue in this moment, man, I'm going to get emotional just talking about it. But like when they're fighting each other and, you know, Clint's like, I've made mistakes, you know, and we see what's happened with him as a Ronin earlier in the film where he's gone vigilante. And Nat says, I don't judge people on their worst mistakes. It is so, so brutal. Um, and we get the back and forth where we think one's going to die and then the other's going to die and then the other's going to die. And then finally it happens. And of course it all pays off, you know, with, when they come back and they just, they, just like the whole movie, if there was a theme in this movie, it's grief, like them trying to grieve this whole film and dealing with it in different ways and some ways better, some ways not. And Clint can't, he's just, he's unable to, to handle it. And Bruce ultimately tells him, he's like, she's not coming back. We have to make it worth it. He says, and that sort of, just propels them on just they just need they constantly have to have like these little pushes to keep them going because i mean i can't imagine how fractured you are emotionally traumatized at this point so that whole scene i think made the lack of deaths completely worth it for me i I loved everything about that one um yeah before we go to tony what what did you think about that well I, i was surprised too because to me clint seemed like more of a worthy he seemed like collateral damage to me. Like if I'm thinking about between the two, 
from a character standpoint, he seemed like the one who would have sacrificed and wanted to sacrifice. And I was surprised that she did because of how deeply she cared about him because of the fact that she wanted him to live fully because she knew that his redemption existed in that farmhouse with his family. And she believed in what they were doing and what they would do enough to say, you need to live your life. So I was incredibly satisfied and surprised because her death felt like a loss and it didn't feel like collateral damage. It didn't feel like, you know what? We have a big battle, so people need to die. And I think that's where real stakes come for me is absolutely do the deaths mean something or do we have just some side character that's a funny dude who dies like a droid of some kind in Star Wars or, you know, does Korg die? You know, if Korg died, I wouldn't feel anything because I'm just losing, you know, the funny guy on, you know, an Abbott and Costello routine or something like that. Right. But when you have her death and then when you have Tony's death, to me, I feel like his death was set up to be the more meaningful one. If I had to pick between him and Cap, not between him and her, I'm sorry, but the other two that I were thinking were probably going to die was between him and Captain America. And for a minute, I thought it was going to be Cap because he, you know, he's wielding Thor's hammer and he's the one facing Thanos, but it came down to Tony. And, and there's a moment there with him and Dr. Strange and Dr. Strange just holds up that finger. And, my wife. So it's brutal. It is it's so brutal because because that, Tony asked him earlier, and Strange is like, "I can't tell you if I can't. If I tell you, it will change." Yep. And so he holds up that one finger. Tony knows exactly what he has to do. He nods too, and you can read it all over. And some of the acting in this series has been so phenomenal. And yeah. this is where the casting director gets so much credit because you have somebody with the quality of Cumberbatch who gets barely any lines in this movie, barely anything to do, but that moment. His facial expression, you can read the grief in that. I'm going to cry. Dang it. You can, you can read it in the nod. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, he, okay, carry on. He knows. He knows. And in some ways, Aaron, I feel like Robert Downey Jr. as an actor, this was kind of his, his life to Iron Man was a lot like Stallone's life to Rocky. In that the ending of his life, the death of Tony Stark and the celebration of his life by every major cast member at that funeral, to me felt like a tribute to Robert Downey Jr. and having the second career because, I mean, he was not doing well before, I think he had a couple of big hits before Iron Man, but Iron Man was his his big breakout, like, I'm now a superstar again. And to me, I felt like his whole story, his arc through this and coming back from, you know, 2008's Iron Man had the most completion for me. Like, he, his story, his death was probably my favorite closure of any character in this, in this series. Oh, I mean, that's, I think that's a no-brainer. Nats is not a closure because we didn't want her to die. Right. We didn't, she didn't need to die. Like she had to, 
to sacrifice herself. And what I love about it is that she has always desired a way to atone for her sins mm-hmm. in a sense. And she is able to do that. And she, I, man, I don't even want to talk about all these cause it's just like watching all these movies back to back to back. You get so connected to these characters and she frequently questions her ability to be a hero like the rest of them. She questions her commitment. She even tells them at one time in one of the films, she's like, you know, you can't count on me. Like I might leave, but she doesn't like, and that's what's so powerful about it. But yes, Tony is, well, I mean, it wrecks you. Um, it is fitting. I think that, um, what it, what it is, is the perfect ending for his character because he gets to fulfill his desire. His heart's desire from the beginning of Iron Man when he becomes Iron Man is to protect the earth. And that is what he does. He protects the earth. He dies satisfied. I love that we get a way to have him experience being a father for five years. Yeah, he doesn't get to forever, but he got it for five years. And that line, I love you 3000, will be infamous in a, in a fandom like forever. Like that will be remembered. That will be an iconic line that people know and quote forever related to him. Um, his death is beautiful and as, I mean, as beautiful as it can be, I'm like weeping as I'm watching it, but like Peter's reaction again with the acting, Tom Holland has been phenomenal in this role in such little screen time. Like I can't wait for far from home. And it's largely because of his performance here, just in those moments, the way he's broken up that mentor relationship that has developed between he and, and Iron Man in the last three movies was incredible and so moving And then Pepper coming in and saying, you know, like, we'll be okay. It just, it's, it was perfect. It's perfect ending. His funeral was amazing. Um, the pan shot slow of every, it's like this history of the MCU, everybody paying tribute to him as the first, as the one who created this emotion, not emotional, (laughs) using words to try and not cry, um, this, uh, incredible saga that he was the center of and it cements his place as the MCU central figure. We've always kind of debated, you know, the cab is an iron man, you know, it's Tony. It's always been Tony. Um, cap is a close, is a one B, but it's always been Tony. And this shows that even the kid from iron man three shows up as a teenager. And a lot of people are like, who's that random teenager in the crowd? And he's the boy from iron man three that helps Tony put his suit back together and helps him, Get his crap out together after his battle for New York breakdown, man. It is incredible payoff. And that's why all those nitpicks I talked about earlier ultimately go away because I care so much about these characters and I think that they were treated so perfectly in the end. Absolutely. So where does it go from here? The MCU has obviously generated a lot of tears from multiple people. And we're all grieving just like the Avengers are to an extent. But we have a world to explore. I think this is the new world. This is the uncharted territory. This is the world that doesn't have Cap and Iron Man in it. And so I think it's it's safe to say that the sky is the limit, but it's also a risky sky too because we're not anchored by two of the most 
iconic characters in the MCU. So I'll pose a question to you. You've you've hinted at one, not hinted. You've basically blatantly said you you want to you want a Guardians Thor team up. Um, but are there any other ones that you could see happening, or any other movies that you would love to to envision, like what you'd like to see? Man, um, wow! I did not expect to go through this again. So, huh? Emotional when you're talking about it and remembering all these things. But um, yeah, I. I'm super excited for Spider-Man Far From Home now, more so than I was before, largely because of Tom Holland's character arc and growth. Uh, I just am super, super jazzed to see where we go and what, how we, how the world recovers from this. It's one of my other nitpicks was kind of like, ah, it didn't feel like the, the world felt weird to me having, you know, been five years with missing half its people. And I just didn't necessarily buy that people weren't going to work and that there were cities shut down. Because, like, it would have been half of most likely people from each, not all from one. So I'm really excited to kind of see what happens in the the fallout from trying to get back to normal. And, of course, Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio. I don't know a lot about that character, but he looks really freaking awesome. So I, I'm pumped for that movie. I'm less excited for the next phase, as I mentioned, but I am pumped for Guardians 3, which looks like it's going to be Thor going on with the Guardians on a road trip. I could watch that for hours. Um, the Thor humor. I mentioned the fat Thor. B- barely got a chance to really. The thing is, like, I just wish it was a great gag, but I didn't want it to linger. Um, I would have liked him to eventually maybe got back in shape. I think partially that's an ability or, uh, intentionally to take him out of the battle in the end, let him be a little less powerful against Thanos. Um, and then also, it's obviously a big part of his character arc. Um, just with his grief that he's dealing with, but I just looking at him as fat, the word got <laughs> annoying for me <laughs> over the course. Christian was, yeah, like, my wife was waiting like, for the, on. for the in shape montage for the weight right. loss montage, like the CrossFit, right? Like he just, he looked silly to me and I was like, okay. And, and I guess ultimately I just, I'd love if we could get away from alcoholism and getting fat as the trope for dealing with grief. Uh, but I guess it's a trope because it's accurate too. There's always that. So guardians with Thor, bring it on. Um, the TV shows I'm mixed. I think I was a little more hyped for them coming into this movie. I'm a little more questionable coming out. I will still be checking them out for sure. I'm really high on the MCU and and this all together, no matter what Loki one intrigues me a little more than it did because now we have him back alive in an alternate timeline. And I would love to see how that plays out. Vision and Wanda is now supposed to be set in the 50s. That's weird. I don't understand. I'm kind of, you know, up in the air on that. Falcon and Bucky still, yes, please. Uh, those two characters, I can't wait to see together. Fan service moments. We didn't really hit them all. So I'm going to just go there next. Um, Captain America picking up Mahomer and, I mean, obviously the theater cheered like you said yours did. Even my press screening, there were some yelps. I immediately thought to myself, I want that pop figure now. So I really hope that there's a pop figure of Captain America with his shield in one hand and hammer in the other. Um, I need that. We also need a Thor mid swing with his axe Stormbreaker in Thanos's neck. That would be really cool. Um, maybe one with Tony like on the ground with the Infinity Gauntlet. Now I'm just doing pop wish lists. Fan service was fun. 
on in those moments. I, I like that a lot. And for me, I always wanted Sam to get the shield. Uh, in the comics, both Bucky and Sam have been Captain America, and I thought that the perfect choice was Sam, both from the way that the character arcs have gone, like worthiness, as Captain tells him he's worthy, but also from a nice progressive move. And I get I, from what I've talked to our friend Emmanuel at E-Man's Movie Reviews, that's what the whole Captain America arc for Sam is about, is him representing a community that has been oppressed, and he's the one showing those leadership qualities now representing the shield. And and so um, I, I'm anxious to see that. I, I really am. And that I'm so I'm, I mean, I'm still high on it overall. I'm just, I just have questions and I'm curious and you know, I, I don't know, a little wait and see. I don't know. What about you? I'm not really excited about much. And that's not saying that I'm, I think everything coming out, is going to be dumb or whatever. I'm, I'm interested. I'm excited about far from home, mostly because I would like to know, this goes back to the time travel issue. Five years in the future, I'm assuming Pete was one of the dusting folks, but surely some of his friends are now five years older and in college. Literally had people asking me that because they were like, wait a second, didn't he get dusted? Or like, how does that work? Didn't nobody aged? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's going to, maybe it'll be explained in some way, shape or form. I don't know. I, I joke about this, but the more I joke about it, the more I want it to become a reality. And this really speaks to what I would like to see the MCU do is to play in the sandbox that they've created. I'd love to see a Nick Fury, Agent Coulson, buddy cop movie set in the 90s. And I say that because I think there are a lot of minor characters that have gotten a lot of love. And they've gotten a lot more appreciation over the course of these last 10 plus years. And to me, it makes sense to, you've got the budget, you've got the fans, you don't have to go blockbuster on a lot of these. You can make them from Disney plus, or you can make just small budget Marvel movies, but you know, having some kind of adventure with Korg and Thor or Korg and, um, and Hulk, you know, you have this, these these ideas that exist in ways like, hey, what if we did this? What if we do that? I'd love to see another Hulk solo movie. Oh, man. We've been wanting that so long. I but, know. But the thing is, is that we have the opportunity now. Yeah. We, sandbox. We have, we have the chance to explore these individual characters because they're now all together. They've all interacted with one another. They've got some chemistry there. Valkyrie's the king of Asgard and... New Asgard, New Asgard, New New Asgard, Queen of Asgard. And then, you know, she has a kind of budding thing with Captain Marvel. So I can see them getting together. Oh, side note, Asgardians of the Galaxy. If it's not called that, they failed. (laughs) But you're in charge. I hope so. You're in charge. Put me in charge. I'll take it and the paycheck. You're in charge. But I'm in charge. Oh, I get where you're going. Okay. Anyway, so I, I don't really have any expectations for phase four or whatever's coming. I just feel like. The MCU has built up enough trust and credibility that they can take more risks. And I hope they do it with the creative teams that they've had in place. And they don't have to necessarily try to top what they've done up to this point, that they can just kind of live and enjoy the world that they've created, the universe that they've created. All right. Well, we're almost spent. 
but it's time for connecting points to finish out this monumental episode. Aaron, do you want me to start or do you want to? All right. He's pointing to me, so I'm going to go ahead and start. This moment is pretty obvious. Maybe it's not, but it's obvious to me. This is why it's my connecting point. My connecting point begins with the line, on your left, Captain, and it's spoken by Falcon. So at this moment in the film, when you hear this, on your left, Captain, this guy in front of me starts getting really excited. And we start realizing what's happening. And what we find out, obviously, is that the snap worked, that everybody starts coming out of the woodwork. People start clapping and cheering. I think a couple of people stood up because somebody yelled, sit down. (laughs) I was like, yeah, sit down. You don't want to ruin this for anybody. And my wife looks at me and she goes, does this normally happen? And I said, in a movie this big, absolutely it does. To me, this isn't about fan service. This is about my one word takeaway, culmination. And this feels very much like not an answer to a narrative question, did it work? But an answer to a fan question, which is how does it happen and what happens? Because to me, it's about the journey and the destination. And the moment that we get all these characters coming back, which we knew most of them were, we were, we were less concerned about the fact that they did come back and more curious about how it would happen and when it would happen and with what purpose. And to me, this moment that began that last epic battle was perfect to me in terms of being able to not only see all these characters come together on the big screen, but to validate what I think is probably the best part of Endgame, which is really embracing this whole idea of superhero community and being able to see all these characters fighting together the history of what we've experienced over the last 10 plus years coming together and seeing all this stuff play out as a team. It's not just the six anymore. It's now like the 200. And so in that small pocket, like with Joss Whedon, what he did with the Avengers at giving each individual person their own little screen time and that one epic shot, that singular camera shot. I think the Russo brothers in the midst of all this chaos, give us opportunities to celebrate our favorite superheroes that we've grown to love. Captain America, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Thor, Incredible Hulk, all these characters coming together. And I think for me, it was the audience reaction to it that made it my connecting point. Because it's a rare thing when an audience will get that crazy and clap and scream and yell in a theater collectively because the community that we see on the big screen is reflected in the community that you see in people who come to this pack theater all together and saying we are all celebrating this together so for me that became my connecting point at the moment that i saw the fight on the screen these guys coming together and then the audience just completely reacting to it that's awesome man i you know it's something that I didn't get to experience because in a press screening, we had incredibly limited numbers for these daytime screenings. It's just the critics. And so that doesn't happen. Um, you know, myself, my guest, we were cheering in our seats and kind of looking at each other and tapping each other and stuff, but it's not the same as like an opening night show. And 
that overwhelming emotion is definitely powerful when it happens like that in a collective setting. I'd be curious how that plays for people on their second viewing when they're at home alone in their comfort of their couch. Is it as rousing or do they focus more on the fact that most of those characters do nothing but walk through a portal and that's pretty much what you get to see of them? <laughs> they don't really do a lot. Um, but it is so cool when they do a symbol and especially with captain being the leader for me like that's the key like he's the guy that leads them and i i just love it and i and i love that it, it comes down to that line as well absolutely left. yeah because that relationship between him and sam and sam has been so important both of both of us have really latched onto that and loved their friendship this whole series and so for that moment to culminate like that perfect absolutely i've loved it what about you well mine is relation to thor and some advice he got from his mom. And it's interesting because I know I complained earlier about him being fat Thor. I do that while fully recognizing that Thor has had one of the most amazingly emotional, satisfying arcs in the last couple of movies. And when you rewatch Ragnarok again, I think you'll probably come up on it a little bit like I did, at least seeing its benefit from Thor's character arc standpoint, maybe not enjoying it as a whole because of all the comedy and stuff. But Jeff Norman, our listener, that is a Thor obsessive guy, like it's kind of creepy, will appreciate me saying all this. Thor grows from this character that is reckless and godlike and kind of likes to just be in charge, but doesn't want any responsibility and he's been through some stuff, man. He goes through the distraction, destruction of Asgard and Ragnarok, the decimation of the surviving refugees by Thanos, killing of Heimdall, the killing of his brother, the loss of his mother in Dark World, the loss of half the universe, thanks to Thanos. Thor is really in a bad place. In Infinity War, he could have killed Thanos, but he didn't aim for the head. And now he has this guilt unlike anyone else in the series. It is unique to him. And so here he is drowning himself in the bottle, letting himself get super fat. So I get it. But then he goes to see his mom again during his time travel episode. He tells her all about his regrets and his failures. He's very choked up. And he says that he failed to live up what was expected of him. And her response is, Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be, Thor. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. Man, what incredible advice that is. Everyone fails at living up to the expectations of others. I mean, we could all use hearing that. You can only succeed when you become the best you, and not who anyone else wants or needs you to be. I love Thor's arc in these last two films. Uh, I think him dealing with so much pathos helps me accept the fact that I hate that he's fat and bumbling for this movie because the emotional weight of what he is carrying is so strong. And the fact that he's a god, a literal god, brought to his knees by this emotional humanistic trauma is something I feel like I can really relate to. Maybe not the god part, but the trauma part. So in the end, 
it even gets better because he makes Valkyrie the king and he tells her it's time to be who I am rather than who I'm supposed to be echoing, you know, his mom's words. He says, but you, you're a leader. That's who you are. And she knows that he's not telling her who he expects her to be. He's confirming for her that he believes in her and who he has seen her to be. And this is a beautiful exchange. I think that marks kind of the final acceptance by Thor that he doesn't have to fulfill some destiny or be a leader to his people, that that's not him, but it is her. And it's especially moving because when he met her, Valkyrie and Ragnarok, she was the drunken wreck with emotional trauma. So basically these two have become like sober buddies and helped each other heal while at the same time embracing their futures on their own terms and via their individual strengths. And so I thought it was incredibly lovely um, to see his arc complete in that way. And to see Renee Russo back on screen is pretty fantastic. I, I love her as, as his mom. She's fantastic. Good stuff, man. Well, that, I think, wraps up another good episode. Not good. Great episode of Feeling Film. We hope you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, this week is pretty light, considering as we are taking a break from FF Plus to recover from in-game Game of Thrones and, of course, catch up on the latest season of Cobra Kai. However, you can look for another mini-sode to drop this week where we talk with the director and producer of the 2018 documentary, The Russian Five. Uh, next week, we'll celebrate Cinco de Mayo with Kales Davis in our discussion of Desperado. So you'll want to tune in for that. I have something to add. We are actually going to drop an episode on Tuesday morning. Patrick doesn't know about yet. Patrick's not going to be involved in it. Myself and two of our contributors, Jeremy Kalkara and Aaron Hunley, are going to just do a completely crazy thing and we're going to podcast on the latest episode of game of thrones so it'll be a mini-sode we're not like making a new podcast i have no idea if we'll do any more but we want to talk about this episode it was a big deal everybody been waiting for it and we got lots of thoughts so we're going to drop a mini-sode on that we'll be recording it monday night and you can look forward to seeing that well seeing it in your feed i guess hearing it on tuesday morning in addition to the interview that we're doing with the uh, director and producer for The Russian Five, which is in theaters now some places. It is in Seattle because that's where I live, and that's how I got notified about this. It's not in Arkansas, uh, so hopefully it'll well, be on demand somewhere. You know, I hope so. It's a really good documentary that I enjoyed the heck out of the first time I saw, and I'm excited for us to get to talk to them about. I am too. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.